welcome to the In Systems We Trust podcast with Mark E. Murray. You're listening to season two. In Systems We Trust dives into all things systems and processes and interviews the professionals who are using them to change the landscape of their organizations every day. This podcast is fueled by Ditto, a team that is on a mission to eliminate team burnout by implementing systems and processes that streamline your business's growth. Are you ready for more clarity? Here we go. Welcome back to another episode of In Systems We Trust. My name is Marquis, and of course, I am your host. And today, I'm speaking with Greg Kilstrom. Greg is a best-selling author, speaker, and entrepreneur. He's currently an advisor and consultant to top companies on customer experience, employee experience, and digital transformation initiatives. In 2017, he sold his award-winning digital experience agency, Carousel 30. Greg is a Lean Six Sigma Black Belt certified, is an Agile certified coach, and holds a certification in business agility. Greg, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much. Looking, looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, likewise. I mean, with credentials like those, I feel like I'm in you know, the presence of royalty today. <laughs> you're, you're so well-versed in all things, um, you know, agile and, you know, project management. And I'm excited to, to chat today. So I really appreciate you taking the time out to connect. Yeah, of course. So first off, would love to understand, you know, what you do, where you come from, um, you know, just understand the background a little bit, you know, um, that brought you to the place you're at right now with, with the work that you're doing. Yeah. So, um, I started, so I'll just go back a a little ways at least. So I got a photography degree back at the, at the beginning of, you know, that's my undergraduate degree at the very beginning of like the web. So late, you know, mid to late nineties, I was really interested in design and, and the internet. And, you know, at that, at the time, things like flash and director for those that um, remember such things, but you know, I was I was really interested in this in this new medium. But you know, ha- basically got into the working world, worked at a startup um, that no one's ever heard of. You know, back in the the original internet boom days. Um, you know, stayed there for a little bit, and it was really at that company that I I came in as a designer, but I was surrounded by software engineers primarily. You know, it was it was I would say seventy five percent software engineers. There were, and mm. marketing folks and the the creative aspects and so and and sales as well and I really just started understanding that what I liked most was working across all of these different disciplines and so I was still I was their webmaster and product designer and and stuff like that but I was really interested in talking with the software engineers understand we created our own like mini language to write. Uh, you know, pre like JS or I guess it was around the time JSP was a, was coming out or whatever, like this dynamic language to like make it the so the designs were easier to make dynamic and, and everything like that. And so, um, you know, I, I was there for a little bit and it went the way of so many other um, startups at the time. And, you know, I found myself um, laid off with 40 of my favorite coworkers and, you know, just kind of wow. struggling, like, what do I do next? And so what I ended up doing was starting a marketing agency that specialized at, at first, especially um, in web design. And again, which was relatively in 2003, you know, relatively new, um, new area. And, 
you know, in marketing, we got to see the rise of social media. I mean, you know, in 2003, I think YouTube might have existed. And, you know, there was a few like beginning right. Friendster and MySpace were, were in existence and, and all that. But, you know, we really got to see the rise of social media as a marketing tool. We got to see, you know, big data was a buzzword and then it, you know, became more and more of a real thing, AI and personalization and marketing. So, you know, we weren't always the first ones to do things, but um, we were early adopters of a lot of these different things and got to work with some big brands and, and doing them as well as some smaller, smaller orgs. And, you know, so what I, what I found was, um, I liked learning about a lot of new things, which the, having an, an agency that worked for a lot of different clients taught me that. But I all, as time went on, I got more and more interested in the processes and the ways that people and systems and platforms kind of work together and collaborate. And I turned that creative, you know, the photography and the design into a, into a, into focusing on creative ways of getting really, really good results in combining all of the stuff that some people say, oh, well, I'm a designer or I'm in mm -hmm. IT or I'm a whatever, whatever you are. I try to think across all of those things. And I think that's what I do today is really I work with leaders that are struggling because they've got really good people in different areas, but they're just not working together or they're not getting the results they need to. Because uh, these days, especially in large organizations, it takes collaboration and just integration of, of system, you know, people, processes and platforms to to really get good results. So that's long answer to your question, but that's, that kind of brings us up to today. It's a great answer. Super interesting. And, you know, um, not sure if you knew this or not, but prior to ditto really starting and, you know, firing up, um, I, I also came from the marketing space. And so, you know, coming from digital marketing as, as a manager and then starting my own agency, I mean, ditto really came out of, and it sounds like it's the same thing for you, you know, you started to realize through working with your clients and through running, you know, that business that there was this operational side of things that people were neglecting or not really good at. And I think, yeah, part of my story um, is, you know, really seeing that need in the business, seeing the need, you know, that our clients are having for some of those things and really feeling drawn to the ops side more than yeah. the marketing and, you know. Um, so th that's really interesting. So I'd love to talk, you know, about, you know, Agile World and the Agile Studio, your your company. So let's fast forward now. You've, you've had those findings. You're coming from the marketing space. Fast forward to the creation of, you know, your, your consultancy as it stands right now. How did that get started? Um, how did you get your first clients? I'd love to understand what it looked like at the very beginning for you. Yeah, sure. So the, so when I started the, the other, the marketing agency, you know, I, I sold that in 2017. So I, you know, I ran yeah. it for 14 years. Um, it had a, you know, it had a nice, um, trajectory and, you know, sold to a larger agency. Mm -hmm. We became, we were part of a roll up. So, uh, became part of the largest, um, independent agency here in DC where, where I'm based. Um, so I stayed there for, for a bit just to help with the transition and then, you know, struck back out. I, I've done this a few times now of, you know, I struck okay. back out on my own and, you know, towards the, towards the middle of, of being at the, the agency that acquired mine, I wrote a book called the agile brand and I decided, um, that, you know, I wanted to start focusing a little more on my personal brand as well as just some, you know, personal passion projects, so to speak of in the, still in the business world, but, um, just kind of getting some of my ideas and thoughts out there where, you know, owning an agency, um, you know, as, as, as you know, it, 
it takes a lot of dedication and focus on clients and and the people at the agency. And so I wasn't able to take the time to write a book, for instance, until I, I actually yeah. left the agency and and was an employee again for for a bit. And so, you know, I did that. And then I, I started a podcast of my own called The Outer World with, with Greg Kilstrom. Um, I started that as well and really just started building. At first, it was really just, you know, thought leadership and content and, and things in this in this realm of creativity marketing and and technology pulled together by process and you know i'm a, I'm a firm believer in agile practices and you know it's um i think it's a good solution to a lot not every problem in the world but to a lot of mm. a lot of challenges in the world and so you know i did that and then you know a, a couple of years after leaving the the agency that acquired mine i started doing more consulting work um with the agile world so yeah. kind of un, under that umbrella and so i just call it the agile studio to differentiate a little bit between the podcast and publishing books and all that stuff and so you know it's it's um you know boutique and you know i bring in good partners and um experts when needed but really just kind of focused on working with um, organizations of all size. I have some very large clients that are, you know, Fortune 100. I have some very small clients that are startups and, um, you know, even some nonprofits that I work with and stuff. And really, you know, it's more about can I really make an impact and solve a big challenge? You know, that's really how I um, how I look at, at taking on a client at this point. Tell me more about that impact, right? Like we all have challenges, right? Even, you know, within our business, there are things that we're constantly improving and having to overcome. So what do those challenges look like for your clients? Are, are, are they the same ones you're coming up against time and time again? How do they differ? And what, what are you seeing mostly when it comes to the people you're working with? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's on the surface, it might be very different, but I think it's, um, my my pitch of my services gets better and better over time, but it's still it's still a bit long. But I think the the common thread is, you know, if you have a if you have a marketing challenge, you can bring on an amazing CMO and that that person can build a team. And you know what? That's you don't need me for that. I, I've done marketing. I know marketing. I can I can do it very well. But you don't necessarily need to bring me in for that challenge because you hire you know. It's not easy to find a great CMO, but it's straightforward. The ask is straightforward enough. Um, okay. Where I come to play is when you have challenges in marketing and technology and maybe delivery on, you know, maybe the un employees are unhappy in, you know, delivering the service. And so you've got employee experience, you've got customer experience issues, you've got data not being integrated properly so people can have the intelligence that they need. In most organizations, big or small, a challenge like that, it involves like multiple departments, multiple people, and there's no one that really owns that because mm. that that is, in a sense, it's it's either a million different pieces or it's everything, depending on how you want to, yeah. how you decide to look at it. And so that's where I come into play. And I don't always, you know, have this purview of, of an entire organization. I may have a, I may, there may be a smaller subset, but I'm really good at, let's call it playing translator between technologists and marketing people or between HR and technology or, you know, different, mm. different realms where I have a, I have a broad experience. I'm not, I, I'll be the first to say it's not deep in every area, but it's, it's broad and deep enough 
that I can speak to people and really, really understand and empathize with their challenges and then work with them to coach them, advise them on solving these challenges. And then, you know, sometimes my engagements are a few months, sometimes it's, they're a few years and some are just ongoing, but, Mm -hmm. um, that's about as short as I can describe it. Cause, but, but it, it really is in these, in these broad reaching challenges that just no one department or team can really solve on their own. Okay. I'd love to know more about your process and if, you know, the depth with your, which you're exploring some of these challenges, if it's ever a hindrance to your process, or is that where, you know, your partners would come in to provide assistance? What's the approach there and how do you get past that for those customers that really need, you know, a bit more digging into? Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of times in, in most cases, um, the clients that I work with already have subject matter experts in place. And in other cases, you know, I can, in certain areas, I can definitely play a, um, you know, a subject matter expert role, but in a lot of cases, they already have the experts. They're just still struggling because it's connecting those dots. That seems to be the challenge. And it's like, they may be a customer experience expert, but it's a challenge with CX and EX. And all of a sudden CX, you know, the CX team and the HR team, aren't really seeing eye to eye or they think the challenge is something different on each side, depending on who you ask. So it's, mm-hmm. it's in that way that I can, that I can be most, most helpful. And as, you know, as far as the process goes, it's pretty straightforward as far as, um, I mean, I, I ev- everything I do, I try to do in you know, the agile sprint process where, you know, the, the length of the sprints and the number of sprints may be completely different based on one problem or another, but, I always believe like we've got to break things down into into meaningful segments and and then just tackle a problem, test it and then move on or, you know, keep keep solving until we move until we, you know, until we solve the the issue and then move on to the next Um, or else we're never going to, you know, we're never going to solve for the big picture all at once. And so I think Mm -hmm. that's where a lot of these digital transformation initiatives really fail is somebody they spend two years trying to solve a problem. And by the time they get there, the the problem has changed and the world has changed. Yes. So let's yeah. take on smaller chunks, get it done and then move on. Even if we have to revisit that in six months, because something in the world has changed, at least we haven't spent all our effort on one thing or one monolithic thing that just is too complex to, to really ever get to the bottom of. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I'd love to know more about how you break that down. Cause I think, the issue that, you know, we see at Ditto quite often is we come in and our process will have, you know, a 30 minute connect call. Then we have an explore call that's an hour and then we're, we're doing a demo if we need to. And then, you know, we're building our proposal out. We're putting the scope together. We come back, they say, yeah, looks good. And then we get into our discovery, right? We're doing our deep dive and we're uncovering all these other things that, you know, weren't mentioned or, you know, weren't discovered in our initial calls. And then we're getting into areas where we're finding, oh, we started improving that process and then we stopped or we got sidetracked or that person left or, you know, we're starting to do this work. And as, as we're delivering, the client's also doing the same thing. They've gotten this sudden burst of energy, let's say, and then they're doing some work. And so there's this overlap. So the, the question is, uh, you mentioned it already. You, you really approach these engagements in an agile, you know, way. And so, how do you, you know, best structure your 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 roadmap, you know, of deliverables in the beginning of the client engagement, 
Um, how are you updating, you know, your, your deliverables or your, your scope, um, throughout the relationship with that client? And are there finite start and end dates or is it just an ongoing relationship because we understand that process improvement is an ongoing thing? Yeah, yeah. So there's um, there's there's quite a bit to unpack there. So I'll do my best. Yeah, to, sure. To, so I think um, there's a there's challenges in let's call it the procurement process. So and, mm-hmm. and I'll I'll just kind of name the name the issues and then I can I'll try to tackle them. So the yeah, procurement sure. process is such that no CFO wants to sign off on an open ended unbounded yeah. exercise. You know, so I'll we'll just put a pin in that for a second. But that's a yeah. challenge, and it's you know. Um, within the process itself, you know, when you agree to a scope of work and, you know, I've been in that situation a million times myself is, you know, you agree to like a, let's say even a firm fixed price contract with scope. And all of a sudden you get in there and you're like, man, you really need this instead, but we're contracted to do this. What do you want us to do? You know, that, so that's, that's another, that's sort of in, in project scope kind of issues. And then, you know, there's the ongoing is, is, you know, are you building in, I think the ongoing might be the the simplest to explain. So maybe I'll start backwards. And, um, but you know, the ongoing there, any project that you do these days needs to have a, a follow on plan of continuous improvement. And I think, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the easiest thing to do would be to just say like, okay, let's, let's just finish that firm fixed price, fixed scope project. And once we finish that, let's have this iterative process. Uh, I'll just use a website redesign as an example. Once we yeah. launch this website, let's never redesign that website from scratch and scrap everything and start over ever again. Let's let's every month reevaluate, mm-hmm. like how are the metrics going? Let's make new content. If we need to inter- update the interface, let's do it iteratively. Like once that big project is done, I think it's a lot easier for everyone to kind of wrap their heads around it that becomes like some kind of retainer relationship or, or something. The pro like, so like stepping backwards in time, then, you know, that project itself, um, again, finance folks and operations folks and don't like to hear this, but the best approach, even in a, to use the website example is to say, you know what, we're going to do different phases and we're going to give you a rough estimate of, of what those phases are going to be, but mm-hmm. we don't know, like, we don't know what you're going to tell us until you tell us what you need. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, because again, I've been, I've written, I've written RFPs. I've read a million RF, not literally a million, but I, it feels like I've read a million RFPs. I've responded to at least a thousand RFPs. Um, wow. some of them are very well written as, as some of them are absolutely terrible and some of them seem well written but are inaccurate once you get in once you get into it and so there's so many variables there what i've seen works best as long as the client can you know can manage the risk on their side is to say you know what we have uh you know we have five hundred thousand dollars for this project let's just say and there's five phases so you know we think it's going to cost a hundred just to make the math easy like we think the the each phase is going to cost a hundred thousand dollars we don't know this for a fact because we haven't done all the work, all the prep work yet, but we think that's, you know, mm-hmm. so in other words, you as the agency would, would propose that the client says, okay, yes, in broad strokes, that sounds good. We know there's going to be variants and they've got a budget for that. But that's, I think that's the best solution is to just say, 
we're going to try to keep it within this realm, but we don't know what you're going to tell us once we get into this. You, you as an agency don't know what great ideas your team is going to have once yeah. you get through the process and start designing. So there needs to be some kind of flexibility in there. Um, and so then I guess to go back in time a little bit further to the procurement process, the RFP process is written such that, again, they're looking for, okay, what's the max budget that we can spend? What's the max timeline we can spend? And what are the exact scope items so that someone in a room somewhere can compare the Excel spreadsheet of like features requested and features delivered? And, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm just outside DC. I've done a, a bit of federal work as well. And I mean, they're even... That's even a level further of, of you know, compliance, comp, contract compliance and all that kind of stuff. It's a it's a challenge when, um, you know, when uh, when you have to get into that situation and something changes. Right. So I I, I think I probably just opened up a lot of <laughs> problems, not necessarily offered solutions, but anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll pause there. <laughs> Hey everyone, it's me, Marquis. I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a bit more about Ditto. If you've been listening to In Systems We Trust for a while, you've heard firsthand accounts of how systems and workflows change the landscape of work for businesses and leaders across the globe. Ever felt like there just aren't enough hours in the day? Is your startup starting to grow and scale and you're wondering how your systems will scale with it? Maybe you're part of a widespread multi-level corporation that needs to update and overhaul its standard operating procedures. Well, if you can relate, Ditto can help. Eliminate team burnout, keep your best talent, and have a clear system in place to help you and your business achieve your goals. Visit thinkditto.com to learn more. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, your your approach to it is one where you can at least be transparent with, with the customer as well, right? Like they understand that what you're giving them is not the final say. There will be opportunities to, to update and improve and, and change things along the way. So I'm assuming then there is some, you know, paperwork that you provide them around, you know, um, if there is something that needs to be updated or changed, there's typically a change management process. Are you walking them through that in the beginning or does that happen when those things need to be addressed? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think from the very start, I mean, open, open, transparent communication are the key to all of this stuff. So I think, you know, from mm -hmm. the very, you know, in the proposal presentation or whatever those that first meeting to really talk yeah. about before the contract is ever awarded, I think there just has to be trust. You know, if you start a relationship, I mean, I've, you know, I've had clients before, I'm not going to name names, but I've had clients before where, you know, it was clear from the beginning, they didn't really trust us. And shame on me, I guess, for taking them on as a client. I mean, sometimes you do things mm -hmm. to you know, cause, cause it seems like the right decision for, for business or whatever, but, yeah. um, you know, it, it doesn't end well if, you know, if you don't have that trust, the project may end and it may, they may get what the, what was delivered, but nobody's walking away ecstatic and like, wow, this was great. If, you know, if there's, if there's that lack of trust. And so I think from the very beginning, um, you know, just establishing like, listen, this is, this is an estimate and that's, yeah. that's all it is. Like you may get, we may increase the estimate by 50% if we hear a lot. We know that you only have budget for for that, so we'll work with you to eliminate scope or push things off to a later phase, or if you have more budget, that's fine too. But like you gotta be realistic about like, listen, we're gonna we're here. If they could do it themselves, I guess, to talk to the client, yeah. like if they could do it themselves, then they would, you know. So they're bringing in an expert. 
And so, you know, again, there are agencies out there that are not trustworthy, unfortunately. It gives us all a bad, you know, a bad yeah. name. And everybody, I'm sure I've been burned by vendors before. We've all been burned. And so it's not it's not that this, you know, that risk aversion comes out of nowhere and, and is unwarranted. But, you know, if you're going to go forward with a process, you've got to find a way to trust that everybody has best intentions. And, you know, if something does, that's another that's another role that I actually play is, you know, I'm not I have a small team that I work with on, on projects. But mo a lot of times I will work with a client and their agency. I'll kind of sit okay. somewhere. I work for the client, but I sit somewhere in the middle almost to kind of work through and just make sure everybody's getting the most value out of the relationship. And I've, you know, on a recent project, I helped a, a, an okay relationship avert catastrophe and actually turned it into a really positive working one because I know how agencies work. I know why they do the things they do. And it's not always, it's not, you know, it's not bad reasons that they're doing things. Agencies just need to do things in a certain way to make money and to bill and, and all that stuff. And a lot of times, you know, you've got clients where they're sitting, you know, they've been in-house at a, at a client for 10 years or sometimes their entire career, and they just don't understand the agency mindset. And so, you know, somebody like me can be incredibly helpful to say, okay, well, this is what they're thinking. This is why they're doing it. They're not trying to cheat you out of money or do anything like that. They're just, they need this for their, on their end of things let's figure out a way to make it work for you. And so, you know, I can, I can function in that degree as well. And I, if, if someone like me isn't there, that's, you know, that would be the function of like an account manager at a, at an agency is to be kind of the client advocate within the agency. Right. How, how do you gain that, that trust with these teams that you're approaching, right? Like there, there are so many things that, you know, need to be addressed. Um, and a lot of the companies, you know, you'll, you'll, come into the picture and they want things done yesterday, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're hiring you because you're an expert. You've done this before, but there's still, you know, in some cases, you know, hesitancy or, you know, the inability to like hand over control to a process yeah. expert. So how do you build that trust and walk them through when you're getting started with any of these engagements? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in in the cases where you know a lot of times um, there's a warm introduction, and so there's there's a level of trust when that happens. Okay. But you know, in the cases where that doesn't happen, um, I I kind of approach it like I recommend often that that clients approach big projects, which is it's my job to get some quick wins in in the relationship, whatever whatever mm -hmm. that means. You know, whether that's they need some help tidying up an RFP before it goes out. And so I'm going to dive in and just, you know, deliver and over deliver and, you know, just make sure that they understand that, you know, I'm there to help and everything. But yeah, I, I believe in like that, you know, let's, let's find the quick wins. Let's find a pilot, you know, whether it's a project or an effort or, you know, some kind of undertaking where I can just say, let me, let me take this dive in. If you don't like the way that I'm approaching this, either we find a way to, you know, to, to modify that or, you know, and it hasn't happened yet, but you know, it, in the, in the off chance that it's just not a good, um, culture fit or whatever, like, you know, it's, I'm, I'm open to that idea that I may not always be the best fit for in every, you know, in every relationship. So, you know, happy to, happy to look into that as well. But, um, but yeah, you know, I think just, 
providing value very quickly is my MO as a consultant. Mm. And I think it should be an agency's MO as well as like, you know, as, as good as your portfolio is, you know, it's, it's your, it's your latest work. And in this case, it's your, it's your work for the, for the client at hand. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Really, really well said. Um, I, I do want to switch gears a little bit because I understand that a lot of the knowledge that you're, you know, imparting on your clients, you, you've written down for the the rest of the world to see and to, to consume. And so yeah, am I correct that the agile workforce is your, your latest yeah. Um, yeah. piece? Yeah. Okay. So the, the subtitle of that book is um, Automation, Autonomy, Decentralization, and Their Role in the On-Demand Workforce of the Future. A big question there. You seem to have some insight into this. You maybe, you know, seen into the future a little bit. What does the workforce of the future look like? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it is going to be a lot more of all of those things, <laughs> all of those things in the subtitle. You know, it's it's going to sure. be a lot more autonomous. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we've seen, you know, with the um, I I think and I go into a little detail of, uh, in on this in the book is, you know, every time we have one of the, I'm in economic downturn number three in, in the course of my career. So, you know, 2001, 2009, and, and now the, the latest, yeah. every time we see this, um, we see more and more people going independent as far as their work goes. So, you know, 2009, the big, the big kind of outcome of that was the Ubers and Lyfts and Instacarts and, and all those of the world. We saw that in, in that, space there were also more freelancers and, and stuff but I think now um, the and with the latest economic downturn um, you know we saw the knowledge workers really you know so everything from mm-hmm. you know the software engineers to the designers to marketing folks and you know all all of that um, the the knowledge work realm we've seen a lot of people wanting to go independent I mean now, Despite there being a lot of jobs available, there's still a lot of people that are just simply not going back to their previous jobs. There's, you know, they call it the great resignation. You know, so many people either actually leaving or considering leaving their their jobs, Um, you know, and this is they're not they're not leaving their jobs to really go get another job that does the same thing. They're leaving it to start new businesses. We've seen it, you know, Mm. in unprecedented numbers, groups of people that were not. Um, known for starting new businesses um, and mass, you know, in, in various areas, you know, they're starting lots of new companies and just kind of striking out on their own. Younger generations are more and more apt to start companies earlier. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, just this idea of more autonomous working and more, you know, I use the term on demand as well, which is, you know, I, I consider myself kind of part of that, which is, you know, I, yeah. I have a company, but I really am working for a several different clients and sort of there and available to work, you know, when and when and where needed and, and stuff. And there's a lot of people that are actually less organized as far as a company goes than me that really are just hired hands for lots of different, lots of different companies. And they're not just, you know, delivering food or, you know, driving or anything like that they're also doing you know higher paid higher skilled work as well and then you know not to mention um automation and you know a lot of the work a lot of the jobs that are being done today are going to be up to what like 30 percent automated you know within years you know a few years so that doesn't necessarily mean entire jobs are going to go away but it means portions of jobs are going to go away and 
I think we're all still trying to grapple with what does that mean? You know, does that mean we get yeah. to do more work? Does it get to, does it mean we get to do more of the work we like and less of the work we don't? I wish it were that. I, I hope it's that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in, in manufacturing and other things it could replace, you know, it already has in some degrees, but uh, is replacing entire jobs and entire roles and, you know, and, um, aside from the job loss, is that even a bad thing if new jobs are created in other areas that pay more and offer more rewarding work? You know, so it's like there's always a there's always a downside and an upside, I hope, in, in all of them. Yeah. You know, I hope I don't think that robots are going to just take over the world. And I'm, I'm an optimist when it comes to technology. Yes, they like, are. Yes, they are. <laughs> well, okay, but yeah, not in my life. Who knows? Yeah, sure. But, <laughs> but I, my hope is that the humans that are looking for jobs will find more reward, you know, hopefully more higher paying as well as more rewarding work. And yeah. the automated things really just do things that, you know, we're, we're admittedly employing people, but they weren't mm. as satisfied in their work. And if, if we can do, you know, if, if it can be a win-win, I, I think it's possible. Cool. Yeah, there's no doubt that the gig economy is booming right now. And that was actually going to be my next question. So I'm glad you addressed it, right? Is people, you know, going out on their own and then relying on, you know, third party or contractors or, you know, people that, you know, are living, you know, nomadic lifestyles, right? So it's good that you see some downside to it. To it. Are, are there other things that in your experience, you know, um, we're, we're not considering now, right? Like with the potential loss of jobs with more automation coming into things. Um, what does that look like for like the workers, right? Like the people that aren't skilled, like w w what are some of those downsides? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, there, there, uh, there's a few things. So with more, let's call it fractional work, um, yeah. in general, I mean, here in the United States, our, um, healthcare system is, is, has a, has a lot to, um, we don't have to get too far into politics, but like sure. there's, yeah. there's a lot to be desired from, from the current setup. And so, you know, that's, that's something where, you know, you, you lose, if you don't have a full-time job, you lose access to, to full-time, you know, to benefits in, in benefits, many cases. Yeah. And even though, you know, ACA covers healthcare for a lot of people, sometimes it's, sometimes it's too expensive. And in other cases, you don't get life insurance or disability insurance or anything like that through, you know, through government healthcare. And so that's just completely, you need to have a, you need to be an employee somewhere in order to get some of those things or, um, you know, pay a lot out of pocket, um, you know, for that. And so that's a big, that's a big challenge. It's a big problem for people that, you know, go independent and think, Oh, it's just about freedom. Well, remember your employer was paying some or all of your health care and or they were offsetting mm -hmm. the cost of of that because of group plans and everything so you know it's a it's a big um it's a it's a big challenge um i hope that you know this is one of those things where i hope that the government steps in in some cases to make that easier and more affordable knowing that there are so many more independent workers out there um, you know, I think the other thing with with you know upskilling, reskilling, like that whole conversation is, yeah, someone's got to go in and help educate these people you know, that are losing yeah. their jobs, these lower skilled jobs, and and help them. And that's, you know, on the one hand, it's like yes, there are relatively low cost ways to learn some of this stuff, but 
that's you know I'm speaking from a position of you know of being able to of being able to afford some of those courses and have mm-hmm. to take the time to do that like there are a lot of people obviously that don't have the luxury of time to be able to learn a new skill while they're working three jobs and trying to make ends meet someone's yeah. got to step it's a, it's a big I don't I don't certainly have a solution to that but I do think this is a this is something where public and private partnerships need to work together in order to solve some of that cuz I mean we're mm-hmm. looking at a record number of jobs available and people not taking them up on that some of that yeah is maybe some people that want to you know take it easy and and have a more relaxed lifestyle but a lot of people just simply don't qualify for those jobs or mm-hmm. aren't able to access those jobs you know there's a there's a gap here that's that I, I'm, people are talking about, but that needs to be addressed somehow. And yeah, that's, I, I wish I had wow. a solution there. Yeah. There's so much to, to chat about there. And I think that's as far down the rabbit hole as we'll go yeah. with that topic. Um, but yeah, it's super interesting. I, I want to ask, um, you know, when it comes to automation, what is your, what, what are your thoughts or your approach, your philosophy around automation? Cause I feel like, and there's a, there's a meme floating around where, you know, why spend, you know, uh, um, butchering it now, but basically it is, you know, why spend all this time, um, or why hire someone to do a job when you can spend, you know, X amount of hours, you know, trying to automate it and failing. Right. And for the listeners, (laughs) sorry, I, I, I just butchered that. I can't remember the actual (laughs) thing, but you know, uh, we see a lot of people want to come in and they just want to automate everything. They want to automate, they don't want to do anything. So what's your approach with your clients when it comes to, to automation and figuring out, you know, what, what should we be automating, um, versus what we should be, you know, testing a little bit more and working on, you know, process improvement versus just jumping to getting the robots to do it. What, what are your thoughts yeah. around that? I mean, I think the, I'm a big fan of automation, but, but you're bringing up a good, a good thought process here, which is we need to make sure that we're automating the right things. And so, you know, mm-hmm. to just assume that we're doing, we're already doing the right things and that we should just automate them is making a big assumption that we've already thought through what the desired end result should be, you know? So in other words, from my standpoint, again, huge fan of automation, because again, I think humans are really, really good at some things, but machines are really, really good at other things. And so I'm all for everybody playing, (laughs) playing to their strengths. But again, if you're just automating a process that was kind of a waste or not giving the right end results in the first place, then you're just kind of, you're, you're getting into that, that, that weird area where, you know, I I think of this in terms of analytics is like, oftentimes I'll see, you know, a report on, you know, progress or results of something that are pulled from numbers that are easy to get. Mm. And so they're not necessarily the most meaningful numbers related to the, you know, to the desired result, but man, I can just go in Google analytics and pull this number and, or there's this stock report out of the a software application that I can just take a screenshot and pull in. Yeah. That's not actually meaningful measurement of things. That's just you taking a screenshot out of things because you didn't want to think through what what really is needed to drive the you know what are the actual KPIs. So to that end, definitely take a step back and say, okay, well, what it what do we actually want to achieve? 
are we tying in the right things? And if there are a lot of manual steps in that process, by all means, let's let's automate that. But let's make sure that you know at the front end that you know the the strategy and the desired results are are established, and on the back end that all of that automation is actually giving us something meaningful and useful, not just what's easy to kind of extract because it's already there. Right. No, that's so good. No, definitely appreciate, you know, that approach as well. Cause I think, yeah, like I said, a lot of people just get, you know, so fixated on this and maybe they've just heard about automation or they're using, you know, different automation frameworks and they just want to, you know, step back as much as they can, but sometimes it can be more of a hindrance than it can be, you know, um, positive. Uh, so, so Ditto, we are, we're Asana Solutions Partners and, you know, anyone who's a longtime listener of the show will know that we love Asana. We talk about them all the time and they, they coined this, this term, um, I want to say back in 2017, um, and the term is work about work, right? So basically that is all of the in-between stuff that is outside of doing the, the technical skilled work that we're hired to do. There is the unnecessary meetings that could have been an email. There's the searching for files. There's not knowing, you know, what the status of something is, you know, and just having your team more or less in disarray because things aren't laid out clearly, right? And it's costing us time. It's costing us money as organizations. And so um, I'd love to know what your take is on, you know, work about work and how do you work to alleviate that in your organization and with your clients as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think the the move to remote and hybrid work has certainly exacerbated some of this stuff. I mean, you know, I think um, the the easy thing to overlook in process improvement sometimes and even, you know, when I get pulled into data integration or, you know, what, whatever the case may be, is the human component of everything. I mean, you know, if robots were entirely running the company, then that would be a whole different conversation. But there is yeah. always a human component no matter what. And so, you know, I've seen, uh, we've all, I'm sure, been exposed to this, or if not, we've seen a, a Dilbert cartoon about it or something. Is like the, you know, the when meetings are a solution to every problem, you've got a problem, mm. right? So, yeah. you know, you, you mentioned things like Asana. And there's, there's great... There's great project or, you know, management tools out there, but uh, some, you know, an organization I know of, I don't work with them, but I know of that, um, you know, they, they use like three different tools and they have meetings, they have stand-up meetings every day and they still have flooded inboxes of, well, what are you working on now? And what, what, who's doing this? And so it's like, yeah. you've invested in all of these things. Why can't you pull it together? And so, you know, that's, at the end of the day, that's, it's a process problem, but it's a culture problem as well mm -hmm. of if you don't trust your people to, again, to use Asana, cause you mentioned it. Um, you know, if you don't trust your people to put what they're working on in Asana and update the tasks and do all of those things, and you're checking with them over email or you're calling them or you're calling meetings to have status updates when literally they're just running yeah. through, well, I updated this task with what you're literally asking me right now. Yeah. You know, there that's a cultural that's a problem and you know, I I have a I have a big challenge with when there's trust issues they need to be addressed and and a lot of times this is leadership that just again, I'm sure it's it's coming from the right place of just wanting the best results, but if you can't trust your people to do to follow the processes that you outline um 
you got to solve that. Like it's got to be, you know, leaders have to lead and leaders have to set an example of how they want their people to, um, to, to work and, and, you know, relay information and, and things like that. And so, you know, a lot of times I start with leadership. In fact, most, you know, most of the times, if not always, I start with leadership to really make sure that they are on board with, are you yeah. good with change happening? And are you good with being, you know, um, Mm. modeling that change first and foremost. And if they aren't, then it's never going to be successful because you've got one, you've got someone saying do this and then they're doing something completely different. And so, you know, I, I think it starts there and then, you know, and then, then look at, okay, again, we have five different ways to find out about one thing. <laughs> Why do you think everyone's confused, demoralized, and still doesn't even know what's, what the record of truth is? Man. It's so good. Such an important question. I just wrote that down. Are you good with change happening? Right? Like, it's so important to uncover. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, um, of course. Th- that, that may have been it. But a question I always like to ask as, you know, we, we wrap up these conversations is when it comes to, you know, digital transformation and process improvement, what are some of the things that, you know, leaders of organizations are not, you know, addressing or they're not thinking of? What are they overlooking? Do you have any thoughts on that that are outside of what the goal that you just dropped there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a big, you know, le- leaders owning their part in it is is a big one. But, you know, to, yeah. to add to that, I guess it's understanding that um, change takes time and that it's work on top of everyone's day job to do that. And so, you know, mm. you can't just it would be nice to put something on the internet and say, you know what, right from now on, this is what our company's about. And, you know, and this is what our mission is. And, you know, wouldn't that be easy uh, having been a CEO a couple of times, like, wouldn't that be easy to just be able to do that? But no, you know, it's, and this is not about entitled millennium millennials and all that kind of stuff. This is, you have got to communicate with your people about this stuff and you've got to understand that they even if they like what the change is, nobody really truly wants to change once they're comfortable with something. And so, you know, you've got to like help them. Yeah. You've got to reframe the way that they think about their jobs in terms of this change. And, mm. you know, not everyone's going to go along with it, but not everyone goes along with everything. Sometimes they're just not the right fit, even if they're great, you know, they're highly skilled and a great, you know, a good at what they do. But, if yeah. you can't clearly articulate what it is that you want, if you can't model that that change to them, and if you can't help them see their contribution towards that that shared goal, then you know that's again shame on the leaders that that can't do that and, and wrap their heads around it. And you know, again, that's that's something that I work with leaders to do. And you know, the 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 strong leaders are the ones that sometimes even admit that they it took, it took a bit for them to be okay with. I mean, I know my first time being CEO, I made I made way, I could write a book about all the mistakes that I made, but you know, that's, that's part of being a leader is, you know, being able to adapt and adjust and, and own, own your, own your own faults and, and mistakes as well. But you got to change and you got to adapt when, when, you know, when the time comes. I'd love to read that book when it, when it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it'll be called what not to do. So yeah. What not to do. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Um, 
let's talk about your tech stack just as we're, we're closing things down here really enjoyed this conversation i just i'm always curious you know what are some of the the tools in your tech stack that you use day in day out that you cannot live without yeah yeah so i mean these days you know probably relatively simple things but i will say calendly changed my life as a um as a you know mostly independent con- consultant that is you know, spent most of my days, um, you know, trying to schedule meetings. So, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't even have a, an assistant. I use Calendly to schedule things. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm a good, big user of Google, you know, Google yeah. Workspace and, and all the all those things. So, um, you know, I've just it, I love collaborative work on, on documents and, and all those kinds of things. And then, yeah, just, you know. I use a lot of different things for, you know, I use all the Adobe products for, you know, various creative things and, um, and stuff like that. But yeah. All right. What about PM work? Any project management tools or anything like that to help you organize and keep the work on track? Um, yeah. So if you, often I'll work with whatever the client is working, um, with that I, that I'm working with, but yeah, you know, I've everything from Jira on more, you know, more Mm. technical projects to like Trello or Basecamp when it's more, you know, when it's less technical work. Um, I prefer those. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I'd love to know what, what's next for you and where can people connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So please, you know, just search Greg Kilstrom um, and, uh, you know, happy to connect with you there. Uh, my website is theagile.world. So you can, uh, I've got a blog podcast and um, you can find my books there as well. They're also on Amazon and, and, other, and other outlets. Incredible. Well, thanks for taking the time out today to connect, Greg. Uh, really enjoyed this conversation. I think we'll have to have a part two at some point down the road just to see how things are progressing for you. Yeah, I'd love that. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the In Systems We Trust podcast with Marquis Murray. If you liked what you heard today, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Don't forget to rate the episode and share it with a friend. Head over to thinkditto.com to learn more about how the team at Ditto can help your business scale by implementing the systems and processes needed to get you there.